0: Okay, well, I have a question for you first then, for each of you here. How would you describe to someone what a godly relationship to your husband or your wife looks like? About two months ago, a friend of mine who doesn't go to church here shared with me that he's really struggling in his marriage relationship. And thinking about what he said, I started asking to myself, what, what is it that makes it work when two people commit to each other? Is it because you just have to persevere and maybe it'll work out and maybe it won't? Is it just the luck of the draw? You, you got someone you were compatible with and it's been a breeze since day one. I thought it was pretty interesting that the Huffington Post offered five reasons why marriages didn't work. The first one is that an intimate sexual relationship becomes almost non-existent. The second one is that a lack of finances cripple our relationship and brings a lot of strain into the marriage. The third one is in ways in some ways we're much more connected than ever but yet we remain completely disconnected at the same time. Our desire for attention outweighs our desire to be loved. That's an important reason why marriages don't work from their perspective. And finally, social media just invited a few thousand people into bed with you. All of those probably sound pretty reasonable to someone who's not a believer if you don't believe the Bible. But I'm going to make the case this morning that the reason so many marriages struggle is because either by ignorance or by choice or by both, we refuse to see the significance and importance of living out our marriages the way that God has designed and intended for them to be. So we're gonna look at the passage closely, but I want to kind of take a 30,000-foot view of things first to begin to have you think about this idea of uh, the curse. On the one hand, it seems that there's such an obvious, remarkable design and hierarchy and orderliness to our world. Let me give you an example. Year in and year out, we witness the migration of various species of birds, fish, and insects that are genetically motivated. They're programmed to head out, oftentimes, via the same exact route, year after year, to the same exact location, sometimes thousands of miles away, to the place where they were born so that they can give birth to their young. What kind of order? Is working within them to have that happen. This is mind-boggling to me. Why is it they do it that way and they just don't choose to give birth right where they are? All of their movements are programmed to occur within an even greater natural order, which first affects the seasonal changes in the daylight and climate found in our natural world, to which these various species are responding. This orderliness is so pervasive and persistent that nothing in the world seems able to operate without being influenced by it. And of course, those seasonal changes are all related to an even grander orderliness that occurs among heavenly bodies, the sun, the earth, and the planets traveling within our solar system, themselves traveling according to a strictly maintained gravitational orderliness, which establishes and maintains their orbits and movements. So it's not unfathomable to suggest that our world is one that possesses some amazing degrees of natural orderliness. And that orderliness seems to be a necessary law for the continuation of existence. The natural world cannot function as we know it without this innate orderliness. And yet, it seems that orderliness is not indispensable to our world, as it's prone to radical change and sudden apparent disasters, which seem to contradict this obvious order we experience. In spite of this maintained orderliness in our physical world, there's a real disorderliness, a falling away from order in the world as well. In some way, this all-pervasive order is ever dwindling, ever becoming weakened, ever threatened to become distorted by disorder. Tornadoes and floods, hurricanes, fires, all sorts of natural disasters are all a part of our ordered world, and yet seem to exist in a way that contradicts the orderliness of it. So we live in a world that is magnificently held together by a timeless presence that maintains its orderliness. Yet all the while our world is also, in a sense, ever decaying and falling away from inherent orderliness. That's called entropy. You've probably heard the word. A process of degradation and running down or a trending towards disorder. So on a more personal and practical level, we humans have an incredible propensity to perpetuate violent acts ourselves. We contribute to the mystery that our world is not only complex in its orderliness, it is even chaotic and violent in seeming opposition to that orderliness. And we have in Scripture a very true and real historical account of how and why this orderliness came into being. God brought orderliness into being to bring order to a formless and chaotic world, it says in Genesis. And then he allowed disorder to enter the world and affect all creation afterwards, and that's the text we find ourselves this morning uh, related to the curse. So in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, God created the earth, it says, and it was without form. The most literal rending is probably it was waste and void. The earth was actually an un folded mass covered by water and darkness the hebrew word translated without form can mean formlessness or the world was created with confusion unreality emptiness it was an earth that was formless and empty it was without order and chaotic then god said let there be light and there was and he separated the formlessness And divided the darkness with the light, and he made a distinction between them. He put them in their proper order, giving them their proper limitations. And he then began to bring order into the whole chaotic world. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, we find a world that is ruined by sin, known theologically as the fall. Sin is described as a violation upon the orderliness of the world. It was the entrance of disorder into our ordered world. And it is grace that will restore order to our world. And sin brought with it God's curse upon the ordered world, resulting in serious and permanent changes upon how the world functioned. And that is what we want to consider this morning in the passage we're looking at. And in that curse, the nature of the man and the woman became entirely different than when they were created. They became morally corrupt in their nature. It is now their nature to act according to their new sinful condition. And now for the man and woman, there can be a new alienation and hostility towards God and each other that is intrinsic to our being human. There is alienation now in their originally ordered relationships. Robert Raymond, in his systematic theology, said that because of sin's effects on men and women, They now have to face the fact that there are many things hampering them from living an ordered life. And he gives a couple of examples. He said, the existence of falsehood, unintentional mistakes, lapses in logical reasoning, self-delusion, self-deception, intentional and unintentional negative influences from other people. Any and all of these effects of sin can and do bring men and women in their search for knowledge to an unrecognized and thus unacknowledged ignorance," he said. So as a result of their disobedience to God's directive and their failure to rightly live under the divine arrangement God had ordained for their relationship before the fall, there would now be a divinely ordained struggle in their relationship. And I want to look briefly, particularly, at the curse spoken against the woman this morning because the curse spoken to the woman has been the most difficult and the most misunderstood curse historically and theologically. Throughout the scriptures, there is this explicit truth that right behavior in the husband and wife relationships includes being in subjection to one another, or being subordinate to one another. The Greek word most commonly used to express that is the word upotasso, upo means under, and tasso means to subject, to subject under. And this idea is really frequent throughout the scriptures, this idea of subjecting things under, under other things. For example, all of creation has been put under and made subject to the authority of the Son by the Father. Angels, authorities, powers are made subject to Christ. All people are subject to the governing authorities, it says in 2 Peter, because those authorities are appointed by God. The church is subject to Christ. Saints are to submit to one another in the fear of God. Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Servants are to be obedient to their masters. Young people are submit themselves to the rule and discipline of their parents. So this is a widely uh, developed theme in the scriptures. And the most serious struggles in marriage, be they Christian or pagan marriages, are related to a refusal to live rightly in the relationship the way that God has ordained that it should be. The punishment or curse I want to consider first is given to the woman. In Genesis 3.16, it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The Brown-Driver-Briggs Hebrew lexicon says of this verse, How shall we interpret the unusual and striking use of this word? Desire in the Hebrew text. So let's think about the context that we're looking at here when we're talking about this curse. This passage takes place immediately after the fall. This is part of the curse, the new order of how things will be declared by God for the man and the woman and the serpent. Scripture is teaching us a particularly a particular negative worldview from God's perspective that will now ensue in the husband and wife relationship. The passage portrays the fallen characteristic of human nature, whose main problem now is a failure to properly understand and live within God's ordained hierarchical order. And the woman in this passage suffers a great reversal here What was intended to be a natural, intimate relationship with her husband is now destroyed because of this curse. God's curse against the woman frustrates her natural, loving relationship to her husband. Their intimacy is misaligned, and her potential joy in bringing new life through children into the world is marred with pain. The that Bible translates this verse this way, and toward your husband will be your desire. In Hebrew, we don't, we don't use uh, the verbs to be, they're, they're understood because they're nominal sentences in Hebrew that don't use verbs of to be. So this has to be looked at in the future sense uh, because the focus is on the oracle is, is of a future struggle between the man and the woman. And so the theological misunderstanding of the verse hinges on what the word desire means. Now you know in English a, a desire is just a wish or a wanting or a craving, a desire, a petition for something. And this word, this Hebrew word desire is really interesting. It occurs 3 times in the Old Testament, once here in 316 and then in 47 and then in Song of Songs 7:10. And the evidence strongly suggests that it should be translated as turning. Your turning will be towards your husband. And the unfortunate translation of this word desire here has led some ancient commentators to suggest that the text is teaching that due to the fall women naturally exhibit overpowering sexual desires for their husbands. Hmm. We can thank a Dominican monk named Pagnino for this convoluted interpretation. He came up with it in 1528, and he translated this verse like this, as thy lusts shall pertain to thy husband. Many current interpreters conclude that it refers to sexual desire here because the subject of the passage is the relationship between a wife and her husband. And because the word is used in a romantic sense in the Song of Songs. But this interpretation really makes little sense in Genesis 3.16 for a couple of reasons. First, it doesn't fit well with the assertion he will dominate you. Second, it implies that sexual desire was not part of the original creation, even though God said you will multiply. And third, it ignores the usage of the word in Genesis 4.7, where it refers to sin's desire to control and dominate Cain. So if you looked at a lot of ancient versions, almost all of 21 of 28 ancient versions translated this Hebrew word as turning and not the word desire. The church fathers are ignorant of any other translation except turning when they wrote about it. The Latin translation used the word conversio here from covertir to turn about. And the Septuagint has has the word apostrophe, which means um, to turn from. Apostrophe in Greek plays is when somebody is talking to another character and then they turn aside to talk to an imaginary character or some other person. So here's the sense I want you to to get for this passage. God is saying that your turning away from God as your rightful head shall now be toward your husband and he will rule over you. In this sense, it has potentially negative effects, or he will be inclined to take advantage of you in a negative sense. And so Eve would now turn away from her sole dependence on God and would turn to her husband, the results of which would be very unpleasant. Note that the verses in both Genesis passages in 3.16 and 4.7 also contain the word rule. In Genesis 4-7, the best translation may be, And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God is talking to Cain, and he's saying, you, you've got to get it together here. If you, don't, if you don't have a right understanding of who I am, like your brother Abel did, then sin is crouching at the door, waiting to take advantage of you. I think there's an unmistakable and intentional connection here between these two verses. The woman desires her husband in the same way that sin desires Cain, namely, to dominate. God is telling Cain that sin is like some crouching beast, perhaps hungering or intent upon or desiring to devour you, or its turning is toward you. Likely here, the idea is, Sin's turning is toward you to incline you toward evil, but you should rule over it or master it. In other words, the relationship between man and woman is no longer as it was intended to be because of the curse. It's cursed with conflict now. To love and cherish is replaced by domination and failure to subjugate to one another. An unregenerate woman desires to rule her husband, but the husband, being stronger physically, will now dominate her. But this is is a curse. You have to understand that this is in the context of a curse that God has brought. This will to subordinate the other in the relationship is inevitable because of the far-reaching effects of sin. So... How can we resolve this? Think about the phrase, and he will rule over you. Now you're probably wondering like, Rick, why is this so important to you? When I was uh, just graduating from seminary, I was asked by one of the elders in our church to go down to his house for lunch, and Sheila, I think, was busy doing something else. and So we're down there, and I liked to me a nice family, his wife was very nice, and children were sitting there having lunch at the table. And the dog is barking outside on the porch, and he says, he looks at his wife, and she, he says, you will let the dog in. And she got up, and she went over and let the dog in. And I thought, hmm, might have to try that. And then, so we're sitting there, and after, after lunch he says to me, would you like some coffee? I said, well sure, if it's not too much problem, that'd be great. He looks at his wife, he says, you will make the coffee. And she gets up, and she goes over and makes the coffee. And I'm thinking to myself, I definitely have to try this. <laughs> so, after lunch, I walk up to the, I walk up back to the house, and I come into the garage, and she lives at the kitchen sink, Doing the dishes, you know. And so she said, "How what was your time?" And I said, "Oh, it was, it was good. It was great." Well, time would you like to have dinner tonight? And I thought, what an opportunity. And so I said, "You will make dinner at six o'clock." And she said, "Excuse me." And I said, "You will make dinner at six o'clock." And then, of course, I, I couldn't help but start laughing and I had to explain to her what the situation was. But see, here's here's what I'm saying. This this elder looked at this passage out of context and thought, I have to rule over my wife. This is what God wants, but failing to recognize that this this is a negative aspect of the relationship. This isn't what God desires. This is a negative way to relate to your spouse. So because of the curse, a completely different relationship ensues between the husband and wife than was otherwise initially intended. This use of the word rule doesn't express how the husband must respond to his wife, but what now would be the negative response to her, failure to subject herself to her husband's authority. In other words, if she's not subjugating herself to his authority, and because of that, now he's dominating over her. This is a negative aspect of the relationship. This is not what God intended from the beginning. This is part of the curse. So instead of being the natural guardian or protector of the weaker, the husband in return might now use his superior power to oppress and devalue or belittle his wife. So this passage does not teach the idea of biblical submission to the husband, sexually or otherwise. Nor does it teach the loving leadership of the husband over the wife. That is biblical, but it can't be supported here. Nor is it teaching that a woman will be drawn towards her husband, and he will rule over her as was intended. This passage is teaching that this is a proclamation by God, of the devastating effect that sin had upon the initial way that God had divinely ordained the husband and wife relationship to be. This passage is part of a judgment oracle. It announces that the conflict between the man and the woman will become the norm now in human society. It does not depict the New Testament ideal where the husband sacrificially loves his wife as Christ loved the church and where the wife recognizes the husband's loving leadership in the family and voluntarily submits to it. That is the New Testament understanding of the relationship. In the Old Testament passage, sin produces a conflict or power struggle between the man and the woman, but in Christ, Man and woman should begin to live harmoniously. But they won't unless they understand that this is God's design for a healthy marriage. It's because this statement made to the woman is made within the context of the curse that it is to be understood in a completely negative sense. He wasn't telling you in the New Testament now that you have to rule over your wife by telling her what to do all day long. So rule in in Genesis 3.16 is not teaching that man will fall into his rightful role as leader. It is teaching that he will tend towards dominion and mastery and lordship over his wife. It has a rather harsh application His response to her is not as it was divinely ordained and intended to be. The way he rules over the woman is part of the punishment oracle for sin, which speaks to the sinful way he will likely respond to her. Now, it's just like reading Proverbs. It's not, you know, everything isn't exactly that way, but generally speaking, this is what the text is suggesting. Every single relationship isn't going to be like that. But generally speaking, that's the tendency to move towards the relationship. Another option is to understand it as having a modal nuance. But he will want to dominate you. In this case, the Lord simply announces the struggle without indicating who will emerge victorious in the relationship. So the woman at her worst would be a nemesis, an agent of retribution towards her husband, someone that inflicts vengeance on her husband. Rather than willing submission to his leadership, her sinful response to him will be a prompting to usurp his role as the leader. And the man at his worst will dominate the woman or be apathetic towards his leadership role rather than lead with humility and love. The woman will respond by either usurping his leadership or becoming servile under his authority. So if we were to draw this out, it might look something like this. Think with me, how did God intend our relationships to be? Well, he created men to be humble, loving leaders. Women were women were created to be willing and submissive to their husband as his helpmeet. What did the curse distorted relationship of men and women look like? Well, in the curse relationship, men tend to want to dominate over women. They want to lord it over them, or they're just completely passive in their leadership role. They have. They're apathetic towards it. They're indifferent towards being the spiritual leader of the family. Women will tend to usurp or seize or confiscate or, you know, steal the relationship from her husband when he's to be the leader. But in the New Testament now, redemption in Christ, relationship of men and women, men are to forsake harsh and selfish. Leadership. They're to grow in love and care for their wives. Women are to forsake resistance to their husband's authority. They're to grow in willing submission to their husband's leadership. But he needs to step up to be the leader in the family spiritually. Let me Let me take this in a little bit different direction as I kind of get ready to conclude here. I think romance has thrown a real wrench into the marital ideal in the 20th century. I don't know about some of you, but I'm, I'm not really a very romantic person. Uh, and if you doubt that, you can just ask Sheila. I've always been kind of shy, to be honest, but it's really been important to me to be a realist. I'm still shy about a lot of things with Sheila, even after 39 years of marriage. And I would say that one of the most important things to me in my married relationship with Sheila has been to be a realist. And frankly, I'm just not sure how romantic realists can really be. But here's, here's the problem, I think, the way, in the way we think about the relationships today in the 20, 21st century. You've seen some of those videos posted online of some of the amazingly romantic marriage proposals, haven't you? The guy sets up some elaborate scheme where he lies to his fiancee so that she'll fall prey to his elaborate, over-the-top marriage proposal that he's filming secretly, and which she realizes is getting taped. and. Never once has anyone ever seen the video where the guy does the elaborate proposal on tape, and afterwards she looks at the camera and she says, Dude, no, no, I'm not interested in getting married. Or it's being secretly recorded to the side somewhere, and he gets the brownie point in the one million viral videos when she's totally taken by surprise, and burst into tears because of her overwhelming joy at the extent of his proposal, which naturally is one in five million that no one will be able to top in the next seven years. The only problem is that now it is becoming a matter of one-upmanship. Who can have the most outrageous, costly, emotional proposal posted online? Who's going to take it to the next level? Surely the idea in doing that is to show everyone that their love is just oceans deeper and more sincere and interesting and cooler than all the people who are watching the video online who are trying to find a way not to feel flushed with guilt at having just seen the most outrageous proposals ever, ever, ever proposed. You know, if you think about that, and you compare it to the way that the Puritans approached marriage, there's quite a dichotomy. See, the the Puritan ideal of marriage was this. No one should marry someone else unless they can love the other person. Love or romance wasn't the cause of the marriage. It was the product of the marriage. It was the product of the marriage. It was the end result of the commitment to the marriage. Love never formed the sufficient reason for getting married. The Puritan advice for those seeking marriage was this. No one suggested that couples should only marry each other when they loved each other. The Puritan advice was that they should not marry when they agree that they can love each other, unless they can agree that they can love each other. You should seek to marry someone that you would find it possible to love. That you should love your wife in advance of the marriage was by no means essential. What does this say about their ideals of love and marriage this has volumes marriage did not result from falling in love but from a decision to enter into the married state followed by the choice of a suitable person the period of courtship was then to create a time of longing and for the affections of marriage to settle in I'm sorry, folks, but I think we just have it—we have it completely backwards. At my daughter's wedding, uh, when she got married, I toasted them by saying that I'm not the person Sheila married at that time, 32 years ago. I said, "Remember to learn to love the person that each one of you is becoming." You might love the person, but they're not gonna be that person in 30 years. I think it's really important for us to think about how God wants us to relate to our spouses in light of the fact that, that the world now relates under the curse motif We don't because we believe in scripture. We believe, and the spirit is working in us to mature us into uh, Christian parents and Christian husbands and wives. I think I'm done. Uh, I have a lot of other stuff to say but I, I think I, I don't want to say it. Um, so I'm, I, I hope I've challenged you to think about um, considering the curse and why why this world now lives under the curse and why there are so many problems in marriage because people are not... Uh, living as husbands and wives the way God has ordained the relationship to be. That the husband is a, is a humble servant to his wife, and he is, he is the spiritual leader of the house, and she is a helpmeet who submits to that. Not, none of this, you will do what I say, that's, that's, that's the Old Testament. That's the curse that God put upon the world. And so we as Christians are now living in a way where we understand the relationship that we should have because we know who Christ is and we know scriptures. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, I just pray that we have been able to consider rightly what it means to love each other as husband and wife, as Christian husbands and wives. Father, as we continue to sing and lift up your name and praise you, we ask for your blessing on us in Christ's name. Amen.